Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. This episode is a one-part solo episode where I try and do an ideological breakdown of the Bernie Sanders campaign so far, as well as look at what are some of the contrasts and differences with the Warren campaign in terms of ideology, and then have a think about what all of this says for the future of the left. I'll make a couple of quick notes before I get started. The first of which is this. I don't know sort of what the future for the Sanders campaign is, if he's going to stay in the long haul, if he's going to get out, what that's going to look like, and I just don't speculate on it in this episode. Another is that I understand that this has been very disappointing for a lot of people that Sanders hasn't been able to win. And I in no way want to trivialise that. So I said on Twitter, I am not going to publicly say anything negative about Sanders for the next few weeks, because I don't think it helps. It's just not a very nice thing to do when people are sort of very disappointed in this loss, and understandably so. And I don't think it's going to help us come together to beat Trump. So with that said, in this episode, you know, I actually think you'll find it a reasonably pro-Sanders episode, and at any rate, what I'm not trying to do is say this position was right or wrong. I'm trying to look at different tools of analysis, you know, much like I did in my Ideologies of the Ancient series, which I will conclude um, next week, probably. Um, I'm just trying to sort of form an analysis of it, and sort of try and work out what's going on here on an analytic level. But that will involve saying things occasionally that do sort of talk about the campaign's failings and do talk about, like, why it wasn't able, I think, to grow beyond the support that it had. And so if you're still in a mode where you're feeling disappointed, um, don't listen to this episode. And, and I don't mean that in, like, a jerk way or a confrontational way. What I mean is, you know, I've done a lot of campaigns myself. I've done a lot of organising. And sometimes, you know, when the campaign's still technically ongoing, but it, it looks almost certain that he won't win, that's a really difficult space to be in. And this episode is sort of analysing what went down and thinking about what comes next. Um, you might not be ready for that conversation yet, and it's okay not to be ready. So, like I say, I think I am actually quite positive about the Sanders campaign in this one, but take that as a sort of um, content warning, as it were. The final point is um, I did plan to talk a lot about the role of race in this election, but what I eventually decided is that it had already become quite a long episode, and I sort of realised the race topic was complex and challenging enough that it deserved its own episode and that it, you know, might be one that's better done with a guest. So I think it's a conversation I'm definitely interested in having and it's something we have talked about on the podcast before. So I mention it as a marker to say I understand this is a hugely important thing. But my focus has been on other aspects of the campaign and I think... Honestly, that's, an, that, that's something that deserves an episode in its own right, rather than making this into either, like, another three-hour episode or 
dealing with it in a way that wouldn't do justice to the complexities and nuances of um, of the issue. Final point, um, very quickly, is I'm recording this from in New York, where our schools have just closed, and it looks like bars and restaurants are going to close because of the coronavirus. I haven't discussed that the impact of that on the campaign. I think it's been there. Um, and I'm probably not going to be discussing that on the podcast, not because I don't think it's important, it's hugely important, and I'm as concerned as anyone is. Um, I just don't think it's something I'm particularly well-placed to discuss in terms of what I know about, so I would be worried about potentially spreading misinformation. So the only thing I have to say on that is I don't know where it's all going. Stay safe, everyone listen to the advice of the best experts, um, and I think, you know, other people will cover that uh, far better than I could hope to, so I'm probably not going to be discussing that on the podcast. Um, not because I don't think it's important, it's obviously hugely consequential, but just, I think, um, it, it's something that will be done better by other people. So that's the final note. Let's get straight to it. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please do share it on social media, recommend to friends. If you're able to support in a more financial way, uh, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. Um, I've been recommending two bucks an episode. So if the episode you listen to is worth a couple of bucks to you, think of that as like a voluntary contribution to help support the show and the costs of it and um, the, the time I put into it. And those support is very welcome. And I'm very, very grateful for anyone who um, supports on Patreon or shares. Okay. With all that said, let's get straight to it. This is um, me doing an ideological analysis of what's gone down in the Bernie campaign so far, and what are some of the differences and contrasts with the Warren campaign. I hope you enjoy. political commentary right now, I'm recording this in the middle of March, is where did Bernie go wrong? It seems as of the time of recording that his path to the nomination is now vanishingly small, and really he would be relying on some sort of true external event like Biden dropping out for whatever reason or something like that. And so there's been a lot of... Um, essentially post-mortems of the Bernie campaign, both coming from people who were supportive of it and people who weren't. Why didn't he win? It seems to be the question on everyone's mind. I actually want to start with the exact opposite question. You know, I'm going to discuss in this episode perhaps some of the things that have held Bernie back, but let's actually start with the opposite one. Why did he do so well? I mean, he hasn't won, which seems very unlikely that he'll win, but he came second in two presidential primaries, and he did so without the sorts of um, institutional backing, 
without the sorts of support from within the party, without the sort of national profile, without all of the things that people, all of the resources people usually have in order to reach that point. Even without winning, that's an incredible feat. I mean, not to be not to be dumb about it, but have you ever come second in a presidential primary? Didn't think so. And if you have, please contact me to be on the podcast, for God's sake. Now, I think in our moment where the story is why has Bernie failed, it's sort of taken for granted that strongly left-wing people, and particularly strongly left-wing young people, you know, would vote for that platform. That if someone comes along and says... Medicare for all, abolish student debt, less intervention overseas. You, you know Bernie Shtick at this point, right? I think we're all familiar with what he's running on. If someone comes along and says that, there is a constituency there that will vote for it. It's just increasingly appearing that that is not a majority constituency within the national democratic primary electorate. But that view is completely ahistorical, because... There's always been, in democratic presidential primaries, and other primaries for that matter, but just thinking of presidential primaries, there's always been people running significantly to the left of where the party is. There's always people doing these runs where it's never quite clear if they're actually trying to win or if they're trying to sort of shift the, the, the window of acceptable discourse, the Overton window, as it sometimes gets called. And you don't need to go back all the way to, like, George McGovern, who is um, someone fairly or unfairly, or reasonably or not, that Bernie gets compared to a lot. Just sort of thinking, within my lifetime, there's always been a token candidate for the far left. So in the last few, who have we had? We've had Dennis Kucinich, we've had Mike Gravel, we've had uh, Jesse Jackson. Now, those are all quite different politicians, but they all sort of match this mould of, like, someone coming along and saying, let's be way more, way more out there, way more progressive than, than we have been. And that, you know, the George McGovern's of the world haven't gone away. They've simply, since what, what do you say, the early 90s, maybe? They've lost a seat at the table within the party establishment, and the party's been dominated by sort of Clinton-era thinking that is sort of much more market-focused, still progressive, but those progressive reforms have to work through markets, not um, big government programmes, that we will make some compromises across the aisle, if that's what it takes, that we will reach out to Republicans. And that sort of has been a model of the party for a while. And the people who want to have true social democratic reforms have very much been on the outside. But they've also, you know, it's not a dictatorship. The party certainly has a lot of power to marginalise marginalize those voices. But they can still compete in presidential primaries, and they did. There was almost always one of these people, I think, in every presidential, competitive presidential primary of my lifetime. But they just didn't do very well, right? And when you look at it in that light, Bernie's achievement becomes all the more progressive. He's managed to turn what was, what, like a 5% of the national primary electorate and grow it 
into, what, 30, 40%? I think he was 42% against Clinton. Looks like he'll be somewhere in the 30s this time. Well, that's an incredible accomplishment. And to have done so in a way that inspires real dedication and loyalty and passion from his fans and belief in him from his fans. Belief that he is really a sort of honest broker in whom we can place our trust. So what's going on here? That's, even if it fell short of the ultimate goal, that's still a remarkable political transformation in terms of the role of the, 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 the various ideological groupings that we have on the American left. That's a, that's a very quick and significant shift. And I talk about Bernie a lot. And I, I sometimes say things Bernie fans like, and I sometimes say things that they don't like. But if nothing else, I'm sort of just fascinated by this. As someone who's really interested in political ideologies, I sort of can't help looking at this and going, wow, that's really different and new and, like, in many ways sort of unexpected. Um, what's causing that? What's happening there? Well, as I often do, I'm going to try and explore this question from several different vantage points. I'm going to try and bring in, to use some academic language here, several different frameworks of analysis to try and answer this, as well as to bring in those frameworks to look at what's going on behind um, Biden's support. I think that's quite ideologically interesting, too. Um, and I do this because I sort of find all of these different frameworks see things that the others miss, but they also all have um, blind spots, basically, that the others might be able to pick up on. So, in many ways, the approach I'm taking in this episode is very, very similar to the approach I'm doing in much more detail in my Ideologies of the Ancients series. So, in some ways, you can think of this episode as, like, a short intermission in that series, but coming from a very similar sort of soft anti-foundationalist um, perspective. So, just to highlight what I mean, um, let's take the most obvious explanation for Bernie's support, which is that he has an attractive policy platform. I think if you ask, maybe not all, but uh, probably a majority, right, of Bernie supporters, why do you support Bernie? That's probably the first thing that they're going to say. They're going to say, well, I believe in healthcare as a human right, and he is proposing, by far and away, the most comprehensive reform of our healthcare system, which is something I believe in, or, you know, similar argument with student debt, or inequality, or the minimum wage, or, you know, whatever, you, whatever your issues are. Now, that's fine, and I think that does explain a lot of his support. But at the same time, it doesn't explain this historical shift that we've just seen. After all, there have been there's always been, in fact, in competitive presidential primaries, uh, candidates running on a similar sort of quote-unquote far-left, and I say quote-unquote because it's only far-left relative to how national American politics have gone these past few decades. It's not that extreme in terms of what the population will support. But there's always been those sort of far-left candidates. Now, they're Platforms might be a little bit different. I'd honestly have to go back and look at exactly what Kucinich was running on. But it, but it was within the same sort of ballpark, you know? And they didn't do well. You know, and you can attribute that 
to them being shut out by the party, by them not having, maybe just not being the strong campaigners or public speakers. There's various stories you can tell there, but clearly Bernie's been able to do something that they haven't. And just saying it's just about policy sort of fails to answer that question. There's kind of a blind spot there, right? So that's what I mean when I say every sort of way of looking at this you have will, will partially answer the question, but it will only partially answer the question. I don't think of any of the ways that I'm going to give you. There's a single one where I go, that is definitive. You know, we have a bunch of facts about the world, facts that are sometimes intuitive, sometimes counterintuitive, that sometimes seem to pull together and sometimes seem to pull apart. And there's just different stories we can tell about those facts. And that's sort of epistemically where we're at. And it's all we've got to go on in political analysis of this sort of kind. It's not a science. Or at least it's not, it's not there yet, right? These are all just stories, right? And I think there's better and worse stories, but that's where we're at. So let's start... You know, I already said I sort of find that it's all just about people like this particular set of policies. That's a story. It accounts for a certain amount of truth. But I think it doesn't cover all of it. So here's a different story that I think does answer that question better. Let's take a story from a materialist perspective. So I go into this in much more detail in my other Ideologies of the Ancient episodes. But very simply... A materialist view of ideological development says you start by looking at the material, i.e. what's going on with structures, and particularly economic structures, and sort of who has what goods, when and why. You start with that, and then ideology, beliefs, um, that comes afterwards as a sort of after-the-fact uh, rationalisation of that underlying economic structure. Well, is there a materialist account of why Bernie's really been able to go much further than, you know, past strongly left-wing candidates have in Democratic presidential primaries? And I think obviously there is. So I'm always a sceptic of saying, you know, just this one statistic explains everything. Like, that, that is so anathema to how I think about politics, right? But I, a while back, I found this one statistic, and I was like, oh my god, well, that explains everything, you know? Um, so here's what it is. If you look at the proportion of national wealth held by the various generational cohorts, millennials, so people sort of roughly my age and younger, they currently hold 10% of the national wealth. This is in the US. Boomers, when, when they were the same age as us, they held 35% of the national wealth. So it's not just that boomers held, hold more wealth than us now, because obviously they've lived longer lives and they've had more time to accrue it. They held a third of na the national wealth when they were our age. And now we only hold 10% of the national wealth. Boomers today, by the way, hold plus 70% of the national wealth, like the, the overwhelming, more than two-thirds of it, right? And doesn't that just sort of explain everything? You know, if our parents and grandparents, and this is a narrative you hear all over political culture, right? I'm not, you know, 
nothing particularly new with me calling attention to it. If our parents and grandparents entered a world that gave them significant, for whatever complicated structural economic reasons, but gave them significant access to wealth, significant access to opportunity early on, and then they've been allowed to build it up, but again, for whatever complex reasons, have not passed it on, well, how would you expect those two different groups to feel about that? Well, pretty much like we see, right? Would it not be completely natural for that younger cohort who has been very disadvantaged comparative to their immediate sort of relatives and so on? Would it not be just the most natural thing in the world for them to feel a certain way about it? And would it not be understandable and to some degree unavoidable if they sort of increasingly felt like they were in a political and economic system that had shut them out, that was not working. And that what develops from that is a narrative that the system as a whole is flawed. And a politician who comes along and says that is going to be very attractive to that younger cohort, but not attractive to the older cohort. And wouldn't that make so much sense of the demographic patterns that we're seeing, both in general electorates and primary electorates, which, look, young people have always been more left-wing than older people, that's always been true, but it's been particularly pronounced in the, the last 10 years or so. And doesn't that statistic just sort of, if you just ask what sort of um, ideological response would follow from that, doesn't that just make so much sense? Now, there's a couple of quick qualifiers you have to have to do there. When you say boomers had more opportunity than us, obviously that's not a universal statement. You're talking about some boomers. Obviously, once you start breaking that group down by race and gender and so on, there's some obvious people who weren't afforded that opportunity, but, but many were, right? The other point to make, and that a lot of people who were sort of hostile to this sort of young people are having a rougher time today than they did a generation ago, one thing they'll point out is, well, look, millennials are still Again, by and large, very affluent in absolute standards. By the standards of history and the world, these are some of the most fortunate people who've ever lived. Do you not maybe need to take a step back and stop complaining? Well, I, I think the answer to that is people don't judge themselves relative to history and the world. They judge themselves by those around them, you know? That the most immediate comparison are their friend groups and their kinship groups, right? And if you're just looking at sort of the people you know, many young people will see themselves and their friends struggling relative to the types of opportunities that their parents had. You know, for right or wrong, that is just sort of how people assess the world. And if you ask it in that relative terms, then, you know, millennials aren't wrong to feel that the challenges they face, both in terms of economic opportunity, also in terms of, like, the affordability of education, the degree to which we are going to have to confront climate change problems that 
many millennials feel like this is a, something that's been dumped on us <laughs> by, by the previous generation, right? And if you add sort of all that up, you get a very rich field to plough for someone like Bernie Sanders to come along. So why, why Bernie Sanders? So, well, I mean, let's think about this, though, right? When was the last, before 2016, when was the last competitive presidential primary? 2008. Well, what else happened in 2008, right? That was the biggest economic downturn in almost 100 years. Now, the economy gradually recovered from that, and we gradually got back to full employment or something close to it. But it did so without rising wages, and it did so, I suspect, in a way that did not create the same sense of opportunity and the same sense of optimism for people graduating into that economy. So this is my cohort, right? I entered the labour market a year or two after the, the Great Recession. And so everyone sort of younger than me was also entering that same labour market. And so to the, you know, 2008 primary voters, there's sort of definitely a left-wing contingent there. But the, the structural conditions that are going to create or, or, or make more extreme um, this sort of generational inequality, they're only just beginning, you know? What, and in many ways, it would have been terrific if we could have elected a socialist in 2008, because they would come with an election that's very winnable because the economy's in trash, and they would enter with big legislative um, majorities. Whereas had Bernie become president in 2016, he would almost certainly have had a Republican Congress, and whoever's the Democrat this time will at very best have a razor-thin Senate majority. So in many ways, the time for Bernie, ideally, would have been 2008. But the problem is that the underlying material substructure, as a Marxist would say, had not yet got to the point where it had produced that ideological superstructure. But over the course of 10, 15 years, whatever, that, you know, we, we now have a generation of young people brought into that labour market, which in many ways feels like a very hostile place for them. And they feel as if, not entirely incorrectly, that the deck is stacked against them. And the ideological reaction to that is basically the sort of thing that Bernie Sanders has been saying for 40 years now. It's that the entire system is broken, that incremental change doesn't work, and that the people sort of quote-unquote on our side have betrayed us. You know, not only did we grow up in this economy, but we grew up under the Obama presidency, who we were all very excited to support, but it didn't affect the more immediate reality of our lives, which I think has led to, to a lot of people feeling that Obama sort of betrayed us. And again, that's a big narrative you see amongst the Bernie people, that Obama sold out is a word I use a lot. Now, I actually disagree with that narrative. I think if you paid attention to what Obama was actually saying and what policies he was actually, what specifics he was proposing, um, it, it was always a bit optimistic 
to assume he would be a sort of FDR-style Democrat. But uh, clearly a lot of people don't see it like that. They see it as someone they believed in who let them down, which again fuels back into this, this narrative that the entire system is broken and needs an overhaul. Now, the problem, of course, is that that cohort of younger voters who entered the economy during this time, that provides a really solid base for Bernie. But it's not yet a majority, right? If you're talking people from 18 to early 30s, something like that, which is the absolute centre of the bullseye of Bernie's support, well, that's just a fairly small percentage of the electorate, and even within the Democratic primary, it gets you to like 20%, maybe, something like that, but it's not enough, right? And so that, that to my mind, that just makes so much sense as a materialist explanation of what's happened. And just as a quick aside, I say materialist, not Marxist, because Marxist has this idea of false consciousness, and, you know, we're sort of doing some sort of, like, subconscious, after-the-fact reconciliation to make those power structures make sense to us. There's none of that to this narrative. This narrative is just that younger people are, in many ways, just reacting to a more or less correct assessment of the underlying economic structure. I think there's a lot of truth to that story, and that explains a lot of Bernie's support. It explains why it's so concentrated amongst young people, um, why it potentially struggles to get beyond young people, and why it's at such a higher level now than it was for, say, Dennis Kucinich or Mike Gravel or any of those people, right? Here's what I think it doesn't explain. It doesn't explain, I think the sort of um, anger you see on the other side. And it doesn't, it doesn't explain that the, the concerns that come up. So looking at left-right politics for a minute, as opposed to um, the primary electorate, what fueled Trump, I don't think, is a desire of older people I mean, it's partly that, but I don't think it's primary. What was exercising those people was not a concern to hang on to their intergenerational wealth. I think from their mind, young people had every bit as much opportunity as them to earn wealth, and it's not on them if they didn't pursue it, and that's it, that's their attitude. Now, you can say that's attitude's wrong, but what, what really seemed to be concerning them Trump voters was a set of concerns about changing culture, essentially. A set of concerns about race, about changing gender norms, about conservative religious groups in this country who felt that their sort of identity was under attack. Now, you can tell a story that explains that within the materialist framework. But I don't think it's a very good story. So this is how the story goes. It's something like this. Um, when people are poor, when the system shuts them out, when they don't have access to jobs or opportunity or healthcare, they then become excellent targets for a demagogue like Trump. And I think Bernie said something like this in his um, New York Times 
interview. So, you, you know, I've said there's a very good materialist explanation for what's going on with Bernie's support, but if you try to totalize that explanation to the entire American political spectrum, I don't think it holds up as well, and here's why. Firstly, it just doesn't match the facts very well. So the average Trump voter, at least in 2016, was more affluent than the average Clinton voter. Now, obviously there's exceptions, and you can find poor Trump voters. Um, but we tend to have this image of Trump voters as people who are economically desperate, and you hear that phrase, economic anxiety, as a way of explaining Trump's support. But actually a lot of them had you know, at least moderate wealth, you know, someone who has a house that's worth a few hundred grand, you know, they perhaps don't live in an urban centre, they're white, they're in their mid-70s. I can win money all day betting that that person voted for Trump, you know, statistically, at least. Obviously, there's exceptions. And so it just doesn't seem to cover the facts of the case. And there's a great deal of empirical work, and I'm just overwhelmingly convinced that the, the whole economic anxiety story just doesn't stand up statistically. And to the extent that people are often talking about economic anxiety to explain their support for Trump, they're often just using that phrase to rationalise a more fundamental set of fears. Now, the other thing I don't like about that story is it's applied so selectively. When, you know, white people who are actually doing comparatively okay vote for a bigoted, stupid, preposterous demagogue, then we bend over backwards to explain why that support was actually, you know, reasonable and responsible, given their, you know, underlying economic circumstances. We never do that type of analysis when, say, black people support Louis Farrakhan or whatever. But even if it was applied consistently, I still don't think it makes much sense. Um, and here's why. I think if the story is America did not develop modern welfare state institutions that created poverty and that created racism... That is a story you can tell. There may be some truth to it, but I think the, the causality is exactly the other way round. It's because America had racism, and remember, America has been enslaving people and so on far before the first countries got their first welfare states. And it is precisely because of the levels of racism in our society, as well as the ways that that racism has structured are electoral and political institutions. That's why we don't have modern European-style welfare states, you know, and there's a number of ways that works. So, for instance, there's, there's a well-documented tendency that white Americans, particularly white Americans living in the South, will not vote for economic policies that they recognise as a good for themselves if black people also benefit from them. So think about um, Reagan's stories about inner-city welfare queens driving Cadillacs. What's the underlying message there? Your, the underlying message is your tax dollars are going to help supposedly undeserving black people in the inner cities. That's what he's effectively saying. And that's been a very common through-line 
in American attitudes um, about sort of the, these big welfare state reforms. And even if you look at policies and say, well, it, it polls well, it's popular, that popularity will go down a lot once people realise that black people will gain, which is an absolutely perverse and self-defeating and destructive and stupid and immoral way of looking at things, but that is the way that a lot of Americans have looked at stuff historically, not to mention in a variety of complicated ways. The history of race in this country has structured our constitutional setup, our electoral and political institutions in a variety of ways which are complex, and I'm not going to go through here, but are nonetheless real, with the result that significant progressive reforms, while popular, tend not to be passable. So I think the causality of that story is, is absolutely backwards. So to sum up, I think the materialist story really seems to hit into something in explaining why Bernie has the amount of support that he does, why it wasn't there a decade or so ago, and why it's so heavily concentrated among young people. I don't think it does a very good job of explaining what's going on on the politically right side of the spectrum. So let's bring in another framework. What if it doesn't all reduce to economics? What if our most fundamental currency is actually the desire to dominate other human beings and not be dominated in turn. This is an idea frequent listeners will know I've explored extensively in my Humiliation episode and my Machiavelli series, but here I think we're going to get something that can make sense of both the Bernie movement and the, the Trump movement. And let's just say that, yes, what young people are reacting to is this economic structure. But foundationally, perhaps, you could say the reason they're reacting to it isn't economics at root bottom, it's that they're finding themselves in relations of domination. So as wages haven't gone up, as more and more companies have become huge, as unions have died out, as a sense of security has been lost following the 2008 crash, is it reasonable to say that, you know, even if people have jobs and they're comparatively affluent relative to history and the world, it's not just the money, it's the power. That people are much less powerless in those roles. They're much more disposable. They're much more um, able to be victims of, of humiliation and abusive behaviours on their bosses. And Bernie hints at that sometimes. He sort of sometimes, I don't even think knowingly, sort of flirts with a sort of neo-republican narrative before sort of returning to his more sort of conventional democratic socialist narrative. That would explain that. Now, what's going on on the other side of the aisle? You know, why hasn't there been a sort of recognition and response to young people feeling themselves under threat and shut out, whether the fundamental story is economic or about powerlessness, and to some extent they probably pull together, right? Here's what I think is happening. It's for a lot of older people, particularly older white people who don't live in big cities. They also feel attacked, and they also feel threatened because the systems of domination that they were a part of 
and embedded within are, are no longer as strong or as operative as they once were. Here's what I mean by that. I want to be specific here. America has always had hierarchies to do with race and gender, as well as other variables. While those still do exist to a degree, I think any reasonable look at the data over the last 30, 40 years says that they've become, shall we say, much less clearly enforced, and for people who are at the bottom of those hierarchies, they now have some, and I say some, mechanisms to protect themselves. So you can no longer just yell the N-word at a subordinate in the office, which, you know, maybe in the, the 50, 60 years ago in the American South, that would have been completely acceptable. And I think what the impetus behind the Trump movement is, is the fear that those systems of domination are being lost. Well, hang on, you might say. People desire not to be dominated. Yes, but they also desire to dominate. And people will accept a deal in which they themselves are being dominated if they can also dominate someone else. And this goes all the way back to pre-Civil War um, debates that we had about uh, slavery. So, you know, I'm not super familiar with this bit of American history, but for a long time, as we we're adding new states and so on, there's a pretty long-running sort of conflict that eventually becomes violent in the Civil War about how many slave states will we have, how many free states, how much longer will we keep doing slavery. And the argument that the abolitionists made, or the sort of free state people made, is they appealed directly to sort of the middle of society, the sort of non-rich but landowning farmers, maybe, or the day labourers, even the white day labourers in the American South. And they said, look, here's all these economic arguments that slavery is actually making your lives worse. And if we went to an abolitionist system, you know, the people who would lose would be the people who owned the huge slave estates, the sort of 1%, of, as it were. You'd actually do better. And what the slave state said in response is you're missing the point. It's not about that. Under our system, there will always be someone beneath us. And we value that. And we value that more than your economics, right? And I think that, that is what people felt like they were losing. And that is what they felt like Trump was giving them back. And so there's all these incidents where Trump was elected of people doing horribly racist things and then saying, I can do this because Trump's the president now. I think that's what they thought they were getting back. So you have, I think, on the sort of extreme ends of the political spectrum, which is actually quite a big chunk of the political spectrum now, i.e. the Trump base and the Bernie base, if you look at it through the lens of um, the fundamental currency is concerns about domination, then on the one hand, you have older people who grew up in quite enforced hierarchies to do with race and gender, who are seeing those hierarchies to an extent, dissolve, and are afraid of losing their place within them, and are reacting quite badly to that, right? Now, to the younger generation, they grew up in a world where those hierarchies were not as enforced. If you're coming into life as an adult in 2008, you know, and you're working in a big city, say, you know, not to say you never saw 
racism in your life or something like that, or that it didn't exist, but you would have worked at an organization that had a sort of equal opportunities policy and would, you know, prevent overt discrimination and so on. And so that's kind of just not something you're thinking about. What you are thinking about is that you're employed by someone who has total power over you, can cut you out the next day, deny you health care for really any reason, and will often make that, make that power felt to you, to rub it in how under the thumb you are. And you're furious about that, right? And you want to stand up for that, and that's your sort of primary currency. Um, whereas to the older people, they don't see that, and they're not concerned by it. They're concerned, again, about losing with their place within a different hierarchy. And so both sides of the conversation are concerned with the same fundamental currency, but it's being processed through very different systems in such a way as they completely talk past each other. And I think on the Sanders left, they look at the Trump right and think, these people are mad too. Their anger seems similar to ours, and they're talking about economic anxiety. Maybe these are allies we can get. And it's understandable when you think about it from that framework that they would see it that way. But it's just not. It's a totally different set of concerns about domination. The final part that I think this domination narrative allows us to produce an answer to, and I'm going to come back to this in more detail because I don't think this is the only answer, I'm just saying it does provide us with a way of thinking about this, is the part of the political left in America that isn't coming behind Bernie, the Biden vote, right, is what about so if you've got two sets of concerns about domination from young people experiencing economic domination and people who were embedded within hierarchies of race and gender domination who want to preserve them, there's another piece, which is what about the people who lived through those, let's just say, racial hierarchies being much more stringently enforced, who have seen them partially dissolve, I say partially, and are now very concerned with the desire of many Trump supporters to bring them back. You know, people who would be the most victimised by bringing them back, and whose main concern is that they not be re-established. Well, those group of people would be very sympathetic, would they not, by this narrative, to a candidate whose primary message is... Trump is an aberration in American politics because of his racism, and that what we really need to do is to, to get rid of him and to get rid of this trend towards reinstating those hierarchies. Well, that's Biden's message, right? And who does that message appeal to? Well, the, the cornerstone of his support is older black voters in the South, who would presumably, right, again, according to this domination narrative be the people who were primarily exercised by, you know, we're, we're not going to be put at the bottom of this hierarchy again, or we're not going to have that hierarchy strengthened or reinforced. And it's not as if they're against the concern of young people or that, like, you know, they're, they're not... They, they want young people to experience economic domination. It's just not the form of domination that impacts them the most personally, and it's not the messaging that's going to attract them. So, 
that's a framework. I think it gets some of it, and I think that's an interesting way to look at it. Another way is to just take a step back and say, we're talking about all this as if it's inevitable, and if it's all set in stone, but don't ideas matter? And when we're looking at the increase in Bernie's support, isn't it also the case that we've seen particular academic discourses, particular theories about the world, catch on and just become much more popular? And you can look at that and say, that's an artefact of economic structures, or that's an artefact of systems of domination. Maybe it is, but maybe... It's just that these ideas made their way out into the world, and people have found them persuasive. Maybe partly influenced by the economic systems and the structures of domination within which they find themselves, or maybe just because they find the ideas attractive. So, I'm thinking back to when I was in college, I read a heck of a lot, and I mean like a heck of a lot of Noam Chomsky who's someone many people have found powerful and persuasive. You could mention maybe Howard Zinn, People's History of America. Now, these are older thinkers. They've been around for a while. But it does seem like, sort of, as I was coming of age politically, they definitely caught on. And then what happened is they got, you know, those sorts of ideas that really the US is a terrorist state and were run by a... um, corporate oligarchy, and our government is just sort of subservient, essentially, to business interests and the business class and so on. You know, a lot of um, people in a sort of much more simplified form than someone like Chomsky, who I find to be a very elegant thinker, in a much more simplified form, a lot of people took that and ran with it. So you've got, you got a bunch of organisations getting set up that, um, so something like the, the Young Turks, who made its, uh, their central, Senk Hugo and all of them, who have made their central thing to talk about money in politics, which sort of, again, is quite close to that narrative. You've got uh, Jacobin has uh, really exploded. You've got um, uh, thinkers like Nathan Robinson and so on, who um, have really been buying into this worldview. And people have been attracted to that narrative, and it's grown. and these these sorts of people talking this way, propagating these ideas, have become really popular. And they've been really popular on the internet, which means that they're going to be disproportionately impacting young people. And they've just sort of, you know, you can make the hero of the story, as it were, economics. Or if you're telling the story of ideas, maybe you just tell the story of ideas. And, you know, you can look at the history of racism and so on and the types of threads that Donald Trump's drawing on. You can look at um, the history of liberalism. You can look at the various ideologies um, that that have justified more sort of mainstream democratic politicians. And for all of them, you can tell a story that isn't just a straight one-two step from structures and institutions through to beliefs, but where actually beliefs are the star of the story. And they operate in a world in a complex and, you know, multi-causal interaction between academic professional thinkers, between large media groups and politicians, and, you know, mass populations who hold particular ideological prerequisites, and then can more specifically buy in to a particular ideology. Um, And that actually the story 
is a sort of combination of those three in which ideas really matter. And I think if you asked why has Bernie become so popular, one answer, the first answer, is the economics of our society have changed quite radically, and particularly they've changed for young people. That's one story. Another story is about increasing economic domination of young people. I think that makes sense as well. And to some degree, will pull together with the economic story, but to some degree will pull apart. So I think if you look at the other side of the spectrum, those the, the economic story and the domination story will tell you very different things about what's going on with Trump's support. They'll also tell you very different things about what's going on with Biden's support. Is it that there's an independent set of concerns about domination? Or is it that it's actually all just the establishment and, you know, voters are lied to and the corporate media and whatever? So you've got two different stories that give you two different answers. And then the final one is, and I'm not going to do a full history of it here, but this would be a great, like, thesis paper from an MA in political theory, is to really try and, like, trace the intellectual origins of the various threads about the system being against everyone, about business interests controlling politics, about the US and foreign policy and so on, to trace the intellectual origins of all of those threads, and then look at how they've been picked up in simplified form and spread by various sorts of sort of self-consciously socialist or far-left organisations that have sprung up recently. You could tell the story of ideas as a history of ideas. So those are, those are like my three responses. The story that begins with economics, the story that begins with domination, and the story that begins with ideas. Which is right? Well, I think there's an easy answer, and I think there's a true answer to that question. Which of these stories do I ultimately land on? I think one way of answering that is to go, well, it's probably like a bit of all of them, right? They probably all capture something. I think that's the easy answer. I think when you do the full sort of multi-stage analysis for people, they tend to go, well, they all kind of seem plausible on their own terms. So it's probably like a bit in between. My answer is, I think, correct, but less satisfying. My answer is we, we just don't know. It might be none of them. It might be none of them are right at all. And what would it even mean to be right? Because all of these stories, they're not, there's not some single final measurement for whether or not they're correct. All of these stories imply different ways of assessing that they're true. So it's not the stories give you just different results and then you've got a single measure to decide if they're true or not. The stories all have, embedded within themselves, their own mechanisms for verifying the truth claims that they make. So what do you do with that? I think you have to say, we don't know. These are stories, they have internal consistency, and like, that's where we're at with our analysis right now. And then there's also a bunch of, like, whole other complications to this. So, for instance, I've been talking about what went 
right with Bernie, right? Where did this come from? And I've given you three alternatives that I think have an internal coherence, have an external coherence, and I think once you sort of get settled into the framework, they just sort of, like, feel right. But then you can go ahead and ask a bunch of questions, and I asked the audience for questions, and so I'm just going to sort of not quote directly, but just sort of weave them into the rest of this episode. So, for instance, if that's a sort of story about Bernie's support, what's our story about Warren's support? This is something people asked me, like, what's the difference between her and Bernie in, um ideological terms. Why did they attract such different demographics of supporters? Um, and then I go to answers that don't gel easily with any of the stories I've just told. You know, political analysis is hard, folks. I'm not here to sort of say, yeah, this is it, you know. I'm here to try and say, this is the total scope and terrain of different answers that you can give. So, Let's just have a look at Warren specifically, because I find this really, really interesting. Never mind, like, who I support. I just think it's, like, fun to think about, you know? Um, so the first response you'll get if you ask, sort of, what's the difference between um, Warren and Sanders is their self-definition. Sanders considers himself a socialist. Warren says, I am a capitalist to my bones. Well, that seems like a pretty big ideological distinction right there, except when you look at it, not only are their policy platforms very, very similar. Like, I mean, I know Bernie Sanders supporters will tell me his is significantly to the to the left of hers, but honestly, relative to the mainstream of American politics, they're, they're quite similar. Um, but they seem to be drawing on a number of, like different, they, they seem to be drawing on a number of, like, different ways of framing the world that are actually quite similar. They, they both talk a lot about helping ordinary people. They both talk a lot about, like, the problems of business elites and the need to constrain them. And, and again, in a way, both of them seem almost to be flirting, maybe not even consciously, but almost to be flirting with a sort of neo-republicanism in how they talk about the economy. Um... And I think the capitalism-socialism thing is a difference of labels. It's a difference of how you present yourself. Like, I think Sanders could easily say, I'm a capitalist to my bones, because after all, he's not proposing we get rid of market systems. He's just saying, I want those systems to work in a more fair and equitable way. And I think if someone with Warren's exact platform and rhetoric came along and called herself a democratic socialist, that wouldn't be crazy either, right? So... That, that is a difference. I don't think it's the fundamental difference. Now, the other thing people will say is they'll say, Warren believes in working through the system, whereas Bernie believes in organising. I mean, I, I, I don't... I think that's a difference that people perceive. I'm not sure it's a difference that's real, because after all, what does believing in organising mean for Bernie? Well, it seems to just mean something like, use the bully pulpit, try and get big campaign events, try and get people out in the streets. Whereas Warren might be a bit more technocratic? Like, I guess that's a difference, but I don't... I think that's a way people have of 
rationalizing the underlying difference, right? So, I, I think, in other words, there's a fundamental divide in how Warren and Sanders appeal to their supporters, which attracts different supporters, but it also influences how those campaigns see each other. And I think this idea that Warren wants to work within the system and she doesn't believe in organising is sort of, like, kind of not really true as an object-level fact, but it's a way that people have making sense of what's really going on. So what's really going on here? Two things. One major, one minor, and I'll do the minor one first. I think there is a tendency at the margin for people who are comparatively more concerned with social justice to orientate towards Warren, and I think there is a tendency at the margin for people who are comparatively more concerned with economic justice to orientate towards Sanders. And I say at the margin, because I think most people on the sort of progressive left are concerned by both, right? But to the extent that they're concerned by one more, I think that tends to gravitate them towards either camp, and of course I say at the margin there will be a million exceptions to this, but it is the case that Sanders does spend more time talking about economic justice, and often will answer a question about racism in terms of economics. Warren will often do the opposite. She'll often answer a question about economics in terms of racism. And, you know, it's just a thought, but maybe that sort of maps through to the demographics that they support. So Bernie tends to do quite well, for instance, um, with young people without college degrees, who might be um, much more motivated by economics. Warren has been attractive to a lot of women. Um, she has got some endorsements from, like, groups representing young people of colour, although like Sanders, they've struggled with, both struggled with older non-white voters. I think that's sort of there, but I'd view that more as like a tendency. I think that's sort of a tendency of how people have self-sorted, but it's not true for everyone within the coalitions, though it does tend to be that people who only see the world through the lens of class and tend to just assume um, there seems to be this view, and I'm not attributing this to all Sanders supporters, it's probably only a small minority of them, that, like, if we just fixed the economy, racism would go away. Like, if we just had a $15 an hour minimum wage, there'd be no more KKK members. Um, now, I don't agree with that view, but to the... And I don't even think most Sanders supporters agree with that view. But to the extent that people do believe that, they tend to be in the Sanders camp. And there's been something trending online, um about, like, identity, so class trumps identity, and that tends to be a Sanders meme. Whereas, conversely, if um, it's very important to you that you'd like to see a female president, well, you're probably going to be in Warren's camp then, right? And so, I think that's the minor difference. But I don't think, I think a lot of people will push back on that and say that's not the main thing that's going on here. I agree that's not the main thing. That is one difference I've sort of noticed there. But again, it's subtle and it's at the margins. Here's what I think's really going on. Is people make the ideological difference between Warren and Sanders about their attitudes to economic systems. Are you a capitalist or are you a socialist? 
I actually, my view is that's not the foundational divide. The foundational divide is attitudes towards political systems. Because, like I say, I think their overall attitudes and what they want to do in the world with regards to economics is sort of largely the same. I think Bernie could probably have ran on Warren's platform and attracted the same amount of support. I, d I don't think it comes down to the minutiae of, like, how long, you know, it would take you to phase in Medicare for All or something. I don't think it's about that. Here's what I think it's about. Foundational to the ideology that Bernie Sanders preaches and that his fans absorb and like and mirror back to him is this idea that our political systems are essentially owned by our economic systems. That through money and politics and other mechanisms, basically all of the leadership of both parties are in support of a pro-corporate agenda that harms ordinary working people, and basically the entire political system is corrupt. And however you want to think about Bernie's support, that is really foundational to it, that view. Um, so whether we're looking at it as a sort of reaction to economic systems, or to systems of uh, domination, um, both of those seem to gear people towards um, a conception of the world where both economics and politics are against them, you know, almost uniformly. And then if you want to look at it as just their ideas in their own right, you know, the idea that we have, you know, what do people call it often, a corporate government, something like that, that's absolutely central to the sort of intellectualized frameworks which support this ideology, whether they support it as after-the-fact rationalizations or whether it is actually those ideas driving the movement in the first place. Whichever way you look at it, I think that conception of the political is, is arguably the foundation stone of the entire sort of pro-Bernie ideology, and it's something that Warren doesn't really share. I think she shares the view of economic structures, but her view, what she said is, not everyone in the Democratic Party is actively fighting for working people. I think her exact words were, it's about half. About half the people of Democrats in Congress and the Senate and so on. They're actually legitimately concerned with working people, and maybe like half of the party is more willing to sort of sell out. But there's none on the Republican side. And I think Warren, as an ex-Republican, sees very, very clearly just how big and how substantive the, the differences between Democrats and Republicans are, and also sees that the Democratic Party's a bit of a muddle, that, like, it's sort of like half and half between people who sort of care and people who don't. Now, that puts her in a really tricky position strategically, because that's not exactly what party leadership wants to hear. I think it has the virtue of being 
true, if I can say something like that. I think that narrative of the world makes it make a lot more... I think it just fits with the facts better, I'll put it that way. But it also puts a fundamental chasm between her and Sanders, because it means that her messaging is not able to fully embrace what I've said is fundamentally the cornerstone of that ideology. And I think to that extent, her refusal to embrace that cornerstone makes her appear untrustworthy in the eyes of many Sanders supporters. Because, after all, if government really is just owned by the big corporations and there really aren't any Democrats, um who are really out fighting for you, except for maybe Sanders and on a good day AOC, then your refusal to talk about that is surely a sign that you're complicit in that. And I think that's what's foundational there. I think that's why people latch on to the phrase about, I'm a capitalist. I think that's why people say stuff like, um... Bernie believes in organising and she doesn't. I don't think those statements actually stand up on their own. I think they're a reflection of the fact that she has not shown sufficient fealty to that underlying narrative. And I don't... I'm not sure Warren ever really got this. You know, I'm not sure she realised that was what was holding her back. I think she thought it was a lot about gender, and I'm going to have to say a few words about gender here, because it has clearly mattered in this primary. There's um, a lot of evidence that um, the sort of level of sexist attitudes people have has quite closely correlated with their primary vote here. Um, I think it's also clearly one of the big reasons why Bernie's not doing as well um, now as he was in 2016. As um, Ezra Klein put it, you have an almost perfect natural experiment of you rerun the election, but with the sort of more moderate establishment figure being a man instead of a woman, but otherwise have very similar policies and very similar records. If anything, Biden's policies and records are marginally, I don't know, I could maybe stand to be corrected on this, but marginally more conservative than Hillary's. And Hillary was certainly a much better debater and speaker than Biden is. So you've got almost a perfect natural experiment. And I think what we've seen is the bulk of Bernie's support, two-thirds, three-quarters, something like that, was genuinely in it for for the ideology, for all the reasons that we've talked about, right? And so I think Bernie Sanders supporters are within their rights to feel offended if someone wants to reduce their um, entire movement, in which they rightfully take a lot of pride, to a sexist backlash. But it's clear there were some people who came along in 2016 who didn't in 2018. Even once it got down to a two-person race, he's not really hit the benchmarks that he set for himself in 2016. And there was that sort of, like, quarter of the movement 
who that does seem to be the most obvious explanation for that fact is they didn't want a woman as as president and there's there's hard data to back this up so when we talk about sexism um we we often act as if it's just speculation but no we have data on this and here's what the data says so i got this from angie maxwell who's been on the podcast and she mentioned it and i um i reached out to her recently um and she sent me the paper that she was talking about and i went through it and essentially here's what she did in that is she measured levels of what's called modern-day sexism in 2016 voters. And what modern-day sexism is, it's a battery of, I think, ten questions, which don't ask, like, do you hate women? They ask, to what extent are people willing to buy into a number of negative stereotypes about women? So it's stuff like, women often lie about sexual uh, sexual harassment in order to get advancement in the workplace. Questions of that sort. And then you give them a score based on how they answer those ten questions. And then she looks at what were the levels of modern-day sexism in the support for the different candidates. Now, the big thing to notice at first is there's a big um, partisan divide there. Overall, Democrats have much lower levels of modern-day sexism than Republicans. No surprises there. Of all the candidates of either party in 2016, uh, Donald Trump supporters had the highest levels of modern-day sexism. Again, I think none of that is super surprising, right? And just as a quick note for the record, both women and men can score positively on the modern-day sexism score. You know, women can express sort of sexist or subtly sexist sentiments just as much as, as men can. So, what about Bernie supporters? Well, actually, in 2016, um, Bernie supporters scored the lowest of, um, I think, any of the main candidates. They were, they were even slightly lower, although the gap was quite small than the, the average level among Clinton supporters. So that's a data point to say, overall, you know, this was not a, a movement characterised by sexism. However, for the minority of Bernie supporters, who then did not support Clinton in the general, and that number, uh, Angie Maxwell estimates to be 25%. I can already hear people saying, it's sort of the one statistic you always get cited back at you when you discuss this, that the number of crossover votes to Trump was um, only 12%, not 25%. Um, well, she's including in that number as well um, third-party voting and um, people who just didn't vote at all. So there's various estimates, but if you include total people who didn't go over to Clinton, most estimates I see put it at about 25%. And I'm not even going to get into the rights and wrongs of that, that's just what the estimate is. Now, here's the thing. Even though the average for all Bernie supporters for modern-day sexism was quite low, or at least low comparative to the other candidates in the race. Those voters who wouldn't cross over to vote for Hillary in the general, 
their modern-day sexism scores were really high. They were much more comparable to Republican primary voters than um, Democratic primary voters. Well, I mean, that's what that's what the study says, and I think that just makes sense. And again, this idea that there was about three-quarters Bernie support in 2016 who were in it for the ideology, and about one-quarter who were there as a sort of um, backlash to a female candidate, that just squares really well with the data we're seeing in 2020, that for whatever reason, right, Bernie's failed to pick up about 20, 25, 30% of the votes that he was getting in 2016. And, you know, you can say gender's not the only reason for that, but if you're trying to compare, why is it that there's a chunk of voters out there who were implacably opposed to Hillary, but are actually basically okay with Joe Biden? There's one big difference that stands out at you there, right? And that would seem to make a difference. And so I think you have to take that as the most straightforward and obvious explanation. There might be other things. A lot of people raised, like, likability and trust concerns with Hillary. But even there, I can't help but wondering if that was the way they were processing an underlying sexist sentiment. Because in my experience talking to people about this, it's not as if people say, I really just don't think a woman can do the job, therefore I'm voting for Trump, or therefore I'm voting for Bernie or Biden or some other man, right? They don't say it that way, and I don't think they even think about it that way to themselves. I think they just happen to find themselves feeling a certain animosity towards certain candidates, and a certain lack of trust towards candidates who happen to be women. And again, that's exactly in line with what a huge amount of psychological research suggests that women, while in the act of seeking a position of power, particularly a position of executive power, will be perceived as less likable and less trustworthy. Listen to all the podcasts um, Kate Mann has, has done on this point, right? And so, again, that just all fits with, like, a wealth of data that gender has been... Not the only variable here, but it's been a significant variable that's um, impacted um, voting patterns over the last two presidential primaries. And again, this is these are the first two primaries, really, where we've had women in who could credibly win it. So it's not crazy. This is quite a new thing for Americans, right, to start thinking about a female president. Um, it's not crazy to think that sexism would play a role here. And again, just to return to my original, to, to my point, I don't think people are thinking, oh, I don't think a woman can do the job. Some people might be thinking about it that way. But I think more how it goes is people just find themselves. You know, prejudice is often subconscious, right? People just find themselves feeling a certain lack of trust or um, a certain just 
just gut feeling hostility towards these candidates. And here's what I think it looks like in practice. In 2016, I had a lot of conversations with people who were very, very, very opposed to Hillary Clinton. Usually men, sometimes women, but usually men. And here's sort of how the conversation would go. They'd list a number of problems with Hillary. And I would say, yes, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. But she is night and day compared to Trump. There's no doubt who I'd rather have. And they go on about various stuff in her record and so on. And I'd make the point, and this is how I always put it, but look, everything you're objecting to with Hillary would go equally as much for Obama. Took money from big banks. It's not as if Obama never did big money fundraisers. Um, hawkish on foreign policy. I mean, Obama was, you know, had did a lot of drone strikes, right? And in many ways, the things you find objectionable about Hillary, she's actually to some degree to Obama's left. Maybe not by as much as you'd want, but here's my question. You loved Obama, and you supported him till the end. What's, what's the difference here? Why is... Hillary so objectionable to you for the same reasons that you were okay with for Obama? And the response I always got back was trust. I just don't trust her. And when I'd ask them to cash that out, I would get things that sounded pretty, I don't know, sexist to me. Basically like, you know, I just, when she speaks, I just can't believe a word she says. I just feel like she's just putting everybody off and so on. And I don't think that person was being dishonest. I think they really did feel like they couldn't trust her. But, you know, you'd be buggered to try and point out with, to them that that trust might be being filtered through a gendered lens. And when you pointed out the, the, our perceptions of trust, all of us, you know, myself included, right, all of us process the world through a sort of gender interpretation of it, people get really defensive. You know, I am concerned with socialism, and I am concerned with getting everyone healthcare, and I find it really insulting that you just dismiss all of that by calling me a sexist. This is just an establishment shill talking point, and I, I literally had someone say, um, who indoctrinated you? Someone said that to me. Who indoctrinated you? When did you sell out to the establishment? Someone literally said that to my face. Um, and, you know, I try in vain to say, look, um, we are all raised in a world that is heavily structured by stereotypes about gender and race and sexual orientation. We are all raised to, to be prejudiced in certain ways. I'm not excluding myself from that. I'm just saying we can approach it with a degree of self-awareness. And, you know, I would say, look, do you really think gender's playing no role at all here? And they'd say, no, I'm sure it plays a role. It just doesn't play a role in my thinking. Um, so anyway, I tell that story merely to say that's what I think the sort of internal story that people tell themselves looks like there. So when I say, you know, I think there was about this, well, I'm not even I say, the, the data pretty clearly shows, there was about this quarter of um, Bernie voters 
for whom it wasn't about ideology in 2016. It was about gender, and that does appear to be a similar chunk of voters um, that have appear to have no problem, or much less problem, with Biden. Um, I'm not, I, I don't think what's happening in their heads is as self-conscious as I don't want a woman. I think it's much more filtered through trust and likability. And again, if you look, I, I, I go through all of that, right, to just pivot back to the point I was making about Warren, so that was a huge long digression. The only reason I went through it is I think if I had merely said there was a chunk of Sanders supporters for whom it actually was about gender, and I hadn't given data and evidence and cashed it out, I think people would have thought I was just making an unfair attack. So I did want to take the time to sort of go through that evidence carefully. The evidence, to my mind, is fairly robust. Um, but again, if that's sort of what's going on here, is there are this chunk who are processing that way. I think that would explain part of the sort of real hostility to Warren that you saw from many prominent Sanders commentators. In um, Nathan Robinson, who's a smart guy and has been an intelligent um, advocate for Bernie, had an article saying, um, progressives, trust your gut on Elizabeth Warren. She's not one of us. Um, well, again, that idea of trust that idea of sort of, you, you, you have a gut feeling on this person, that you don't like them and you don't trust them. Um, well, that very much matches the evidence that we have for the role that sexism plays and how people process it. So I did just have to say that, you know, when we are talking about divides between the Warren and the Sanders camp, of course gender plays a role here. It's not the only thing, and I'm actually going to argue it's not, probably not the primary thing, but of course it does. And there's so much evidence that language of trust and likability has a strong um, gender component to it, as well as language of electability. I think many voters were quite scared of nominating a woman this time because of what happened to Hillary. The idea would be, you know, there are reasonable reasons to assume that Hillary's gender hurt her in the general election. Do we want to take that risk again? The thought would go something like, I'm not sexist, but those swing voters we might need in Ohio and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, I'm not sure about them. I'm not saying that's the correct way of thinking, but that does appear to be the way of thinking um, that many people have taken to the primary. They've been much more skittish about the electability of women and people of colour, like much more skittish. So that's that, and I think that has played into that. I think, though, that that's been true for part of that lack of trust. I think, though that there is the majority of Sanders supporters whom, you know, I'm not going to say a sexist thought has never entered their head, but for whom the lack of trust is primarily ideological, and sexism, if it exists, is secondary. But I did just want to make that point. So again, I think the sort of 
one quarter, three quarters metric here is obviously inexact, and obviously it's a spectrum, and obviously there might be people somewhat in the middle who are kind of motivated a bit by ideology and a bit by sexism. But I would say the sort of broad chunk of the Sanders' distrust of Warren has come from an ideological place in the the divide I constructed earlier about different conceptions of the political. Because I think to the Sanders' ideology, the political is wholly subservient to the economic. There are these, you know, big corporations and wealthy individuals who sort of effectively run the economy, and um, our government is essentially a wholly owned subsidiary of them, right? The media too, right? The sort of um, Noam Chomsky manufacturing consent analysis seems to have played a really big role in the thinking of this movement. How many times do you hear the phrase like the corporate media? Um, in this case, the corporate media is sort of anything other than those outlets that are just overtly there to support Bernie Sanders. But they do so because the media is owned by big corporations, and so they're always going to be out to promote the interests of, of corporate America. Now, the thing is then, to the extent that someone doesn't buy into that analysis of the political, they kind of become untrustworthy, right? And I think that's what you saw with Warren, and I think that is the sort of foundational divide there. I think it's also actually why Warren, at least in some points of the campaign, was able to pick up voters that Sanders wasn't, and why the crossover between the support that those candidates were able to attract was not as great as you might have assumed on the basis of their policy platforms alone. And I think what, what the Sanders people didn't realise going into this race is that this vision of the political that they have is not something that everyone shares. And actually, I think as we've seen repeatedly in this campaign, it's a description of the world that actually many people find deeply off-putting. Now, that's actually not a judgment on whether this view of the world is right or wrong. I'm simply looking at the, the comparative levels of support that it has. Now, I think the mistake, if you can call it that, that the Sanders campaign made, I wouldn't even say mistake, I think the, the way they saw things which allowed them to attract some support and Warren to attract a different set of support, is they kind of conflated a general anti-establishment feeling with a commitment to a much more specific narrative about the relationship between political and economic systems. Here's, here's what I mean by that. If you ask the average American... Do you, th do you hate the establishment as just a big, vague, generic term? They'll say yes. Everyone always resents those in power a little bit, right? If you ask them, do you think Washington is broken? Most Americans will say yes. But here's the thing. Commitment, and I think, you know, we see that Americans are frustrated with the establishment. We see um, that they're frustrated with the political system. And... 
we assume that that means a commitment to a much more specific narrative about what's going on wrong within it. Just a sort of general unease and distrust doesn't equate to buying in point by point to sort of every line of the Bernie Sanders narrative. And I think once you get into the specifics, not just is Washington broken, but what's going wrong with it, and you start saying things like both parties are equally to blame and we need to run against the Democrats as much as the Republicans, actually turns out a lot of people find that really off-putting. Again, that's not even a judgment about whether they're correct, but I think that is what they ran into. Warren, by contrast, I think there's a bigger set of people, and again, this isn't a view about what's right, this is just my read of the data, I think there's a bigger set of people who will support progressive policies, because if you look at what the, the specifics of what they're running on, a lot of these policies are quite popular. So something like the wealth tax, which both of them had in their platforms, gets 60-70% public support. Even something like Medicare for All and the replacement, I say replacement, not elimination, the replacement of private insurance systems, which is probably the least popular part of the platform, even that'll get like 40% or so. It's not devastatingly unpopular. Um, I think the support for those policies is wider than the support for this specific narrative, not just against the establishment, but that both parties are equally corrupt, both parties are sort of in the pay of billionaires, as it were, and we need, to just use their words, a political revolution to sweep them all away. That specific narrative, I think, is invested in and deeply invested in by, I think the data is showing us now, maybe 20-25% of the Democratic primary electorate, specifically, or disproportionately, that cohort of younger voters that I've talked about for all of the different ideological reasons I've explained. But actually, the, then there's 40-50% you know, who could be sold on some sort of progressive policy platform. So Sanders had the people who were invested both in ideology and in the policy. Warren, I think, was picking up the people, or at least when she was doing well in the campaign, she was picking up the people who were sympathetic to policy, but were not sold on the ideological framing in which both parties are to blame and we need a revolution. I think that's, that's why you saw that actually they were kind of drawing from separate streams. And if you looked at second place preferences, you'd assume that like Warren, Sand Warren voters go over to Sanders and vice versa, but that's actually just not what you saw at all. And I think that's sort of why and what was happening there. And then I think the question becomes something like this. If Warren's sort of more rhetorically more moderate approach to a, you know, a policy platform that's substantively very similar, if that was able to expand out from the Sanders coalition, what do we need to do to get both of those halves behind the same candidate, right? And that has, in this election, 
basically failed to happen because, as we saw, when Warren dropped out, her voters that she had did not simply revert to Sanders. The data I've seen is that they actually split fairly evenly between Biden and Bernie. And I would predict, I don't know, but I would predict that there had there been another candidate in the race who was somewhere between Biden and Bernie, both rhetorically and substantively, say like Kamala Harris or someone was still in, I think a lot of Warren voters wouldn't have gone to either Bernie or Biden, they'd have gone to that third candidate. So what, what do we need to do to, to get those two halves together? Because in the answer to that question is how a progressive could conceivably win a national primary in the future. And I think it's actually really quite hard. And it's hard for this reason. Is There's one answer which is obvious, which is just to say, well, if there's voters who will support the policy, but won't support the ideological framing of that policy, won't support the narrative that justifies that policy, then, then really, what does the, the narrative matter? Let, let's moderate on the rhetoric front in order to succeed on the policy front. Um, so, in other words, we just go the Warren route, right? The problem with that is, and why I don't think that works, is people are not primarily assessing policy, even when they think they are. They're assessing the storylines that go around the policy. And it is just the fact of the matter that the people who are most invested in Sanders are also very invested in that ideology. And to an extent that a candidate comes along who doesn't show a certain amount of loyalty to that ideology, they're not going to be trusted by that sort of 20% who are hardcore into Sanders. Because put simply, if the entire political system of both parties is against you, someone who doesn't say that is just part of the, the system, and the system lies to you all the time. People promise you all these progressive reforms, but it never happens, right? So those people, I think, will find it very difficult to get on board with someone who doesn't clearly commit to that underlying narrative. So you're kind of faced with an odd choice. You can rhetorically moderate, or just not even moderate, have a different ideological framing around the policies that you're pushing, i.e. the Warren route, but then you'll lose the people who are heavily invested in that narrative, that ideological framing. Or you can fully buy into the narrative ideological framing, in which case you'll lose people who are sympathetic to the policies, but put off or don't fully buy into the particular ideological framing of revolution and the entire systems against us. And this brings me on to another point I wanted to talk about, is a lot of people are saying including um, Sanders supporters, right, David Pakman or something has said this a lot of times, the big lesson here is 
we made it harder for ourselves than it needed to be. So regardless of the right or wrongs, if people are scared by the label socialist, why did you call yourself a socialist? If people are scared by the particular um, mechanics of how we, we get to Medicare for All, particularly the replacement of private insurer plans, if that overall just is a really unpopular policy, why did we make that the centerpiece of our campaign? And why did we make that the litmus test for whether or not someone is a true progressive? After all, you know, if you look at European healthcare, which Sanders references a lot, there's any number of ways you can do it. Some of which are sort of Medicare for all things, some of which are direct government provision, like the NHS, but some of which are regulated private markets that still manage to ensure basically universal health care. So there's a number of ways you can go about this. Why pick the most unpopular one, make it your flagship policy, and say that anyone who doesn't sign up to this is an ideological enemy? And not just Sanders' opponents, a lot of Sanders' supporters um, are now saying, you know, honestly, we probably did shoot ourselves in the, the foot with this. And so I was thinking about this a lot, and I sort of challenged myself to come up with a reason why that isn't just Sanders made a mistake, a tactical error, you know, or a strategic error, I guess. And here's what I came up with. I think, first of all, the people who say that are looking at it purely through the lens of advancing policy, and the particular language you use around that is just a rhetorical gloss, and that if that language isn't serving you, you can put other language in and you'll still get the same policy, which isn't what we all wanted all along. And I just say no. Like, and this isn't unique to Bernie, this is a truth of all of politics across the entire political spectrum. Look, you think Trump voters are primarily concerned with policy outcomes? They'll shift their policy preferences with Donald Trump. They were against Russia one day, they're fine with it now. For free tr trade one day, fine with it now. You know, policy preferences have changed drastically within the Republican electorate since he's been elected. No, what they're in it for is a particular narrative, a particular ideological framing, a particular sense of group identity, and a particular trust in and loyalty to a particular leader, right? So when I say that the, for the Sanders movement, you have to understand how much ideology is a factor, and it's not just about policy outcomes. That's, I'm not, that's not a critique of Bernie, and I'm not pointing out anything unique to Bernie. This is just how most people think politically most of the time. And, you know, you could wish it were otherwise, but you'd only be wishing, right? So, to come back to my question... Why was it in, why did you have to call yourself a socialist? And people will say, yeah, but this is what democratic socialism means. And I agree with that argument. I don't think democratic, you know, as someone who grew up in Europe, right? I don't, this is nothing that we need to be scared of or anything crazy. And I get the argument we're talking about Denmark, not Venezuela. But if there's a lot of Americans who don't hear the word that way, why insist on using the word? Even if the potential downsides from having a social not socialist nominee are significantly overhyped.
are exaggerated. And I think there's actually a good case that the risks are exaggerated. But even if the risks are exaggerated, they're still there. And I just don't see what the upside is. Why do it? Call, just call yourself a progressive. That's fine. Well, here's what I think is going on here. And I came up with an analogy, and just bear with me, this is going to make sense. Is... Have you ever heard the rational interest theory explanation for why people get tattoos? Bear with me, this is going to make sense. So, I'm not normally a fan of, like, hyper-rational interest theory, but I think at its best, it's this idea that even though individual people aren't acting rationally most of the time, on aggregate, if you look at the patterns of how people behave, those patterns tend to follow what the sort of aggregate self-interest for the people within different groups would be. Um, so, in the case of tattoos, well, you can look at it this way, of getting a tattoo, and let's say a prominent tattoo that signals something strongly countercultural. You can say that's by and large not a rational act. People have a particular attachment to the thing they're getting tattooed on them, but this is something that could have a social stigma, it's something that could perhaps, it shouldn't, but it could harm you in employment or something like that, and people get this permanent thing that they might regret um, for very, very sort of silly, flippant reasons, and it's just an emotion over reason decision. That's a narrative you can tell. But actually, there's a more interesting narrative, which is getting a tattoo is a concrete statement of loyalty to a particular countercultural worldview. So this is just a narrative people have constructed. Go with me here. And let's take the most extreme case of, say, something like a biker gang. Right, I understand. Not every, a lot of people have tattoos, not everyone who gets them is part of a biker gang, I'm not saying that. But why would someone get a prominent gang tattoo? Surely this is against their rational self-interest, and that it's probably not going to do them any favours when they want to get a job at the bank, right? Well, actually, it's in their rational self-interest, precisely because they want to credibly signal to other people within that community that they are not going to get another to, to go get a job at the bank. So in other words, in order for any sort of um, countercultural group to exist, particularly a countercultural group like a gang, in which you might have to do dangerous or illegal activities, a very strong degree of trust is required to be a member. It, to take the most extreme case, if membership of the gang might involve illegal activities, it's very important to know that that person doing it with you won't sell you out if you all get arrested. Well, what's one way you can signal that you can be trusted is by taking actions that will make it more difficult for you to gain acceptance in mainstream culture. You're sort of showing, I'm in this with both feet, and I'm not going back. So actually, that from the individual point of view, the losses you might gain from sort of mainstream social acceptance from getting prominent gang tattoos are offset by the gains you can get by being trusted by the group. 
the countercultural group, the gang or whatever. So it's quite rational for people to do it. And it's quite rational for the group to accept that as um, something that proves that this person is more likely to be trusted because they actually are undertaking, say you take out like a prominent face tattoo of the gang logo or something, they are actually undertaking an action that will harm them in the broader community, and as a result of that, have concretely demonstrated that they can be trusted. And maybe that's true to a much lesser degree of like a rock musician or something. You can tell how cool I am and how into all this stuff I am, like a rock musician. Yeah, I'm going to talk about the age divide, who, who sounds like a boomer here. But like some, some sort of like heavy metal guitarist will often have a lot of tattoos. And it's sort of a signal, right? I'm part of this countercultural tribe. And I, I'm credibly showing you that I'm, I'm really in it. I'm not a, a poser. I'm not a phony. I'm not like, you know, doing the Miley Cyrus thing where I go to a countercultural group for a bit and then jump back again. No, I'm really in it, you know? And it's a credible signal. Right? Now, you might disagree with that. Certainly I'm convinced only the tiniest minority of people who get tattoos conceive of them in explicitly those terms, but the idea of this sort of rational self-interest theory is that's sort of the underlying guide to our actions, but we often think about it and process it in different ways. Okay, do you get the analogy here? Calling yourself a democratic socialist is kind of like a gang tattoo. And the Sanders movement is the ideological equivalent of a countercultural group, like, say, the heavy metal music scene or something like that, right? In that its whole narrative defines itself in op opposition to the prevailing political, economic, media power structures of the day. And it doesn't trust people who are embedded within those power structures. And, by the way, I don't mean to say that this is a purely symbolic concern. It's actually, I mean, from within the parameters of that worldview, it's quite a rational, strategic concern. You know, so many Democrats in Congress will say, yeah, I'm a solid progressive, I'm with you all the way. But then, when it really comes down to it, can't be counted on, right? So how do you, like... If you're, like, someone who is bought into that ideology, how do you signal out people who are really on your side, right? And again, the voter kind of has a similar problem to the biker gang in that they need people they can trust. And they need to know people who will really be with them, not just in words, but in deeds. You know, if you're a biker gang, the last thing in the world you want is someone who comes along and talks all the tough talk, but the minute you get them in a police cell spills all the beans. On a similar level, if you really want a robustly progressive platform, the last thing you want is a politician who sort of signals it in theory, but then just won't fight for it in practice, and unfortunately... There are such politicians, right? This isn't a purely symbolic problem. And so, just like the biker gang develops a number of initiation rites, like tattoos, like dressing in a certain ways, and not that I know anything at all about this world, but don't gangs have quite a lot of, like, initiation ceremonies where people sort of have to prove their trustworthiness? Well, 
I think the progressive left in this country as it's developed, and again, it's very new, it's developed in the last ten years, has sort of developed a series of, like, ideological initiation rituals. Um, and what better one than calling yourself a socialist, right? What better one than a guy who's been calling himself a socialist for 40 years? This guy isn't in it, who is? And it works in the same way as getting a tattoo, in that there is you're actually imposing a cost on yourself. Calling yourself a socialist, not caucusing with the Democratic Party, has real costs. It really disadvantages Bernie in some ways, and it makes primary voters more scared to elect him, and it makes general election voters potentially less sympathetic to a platform they would otherwise support. So he's... He's imposed a real cost on himself, but by imposing a real cost, he's been able to demonstrate to the in-group that he really is someone to be trusted. And I think a similar thing goes with Medicare for All. I think a lot of people who think of themselves as progressives, but are sort of more in the Warren camp of I'm progressive, but, like, I want to get stuff done, um... They just look at this and they go, why did we make Medicare for All the litmus test? Because it really is the litmus test, right? That's like what we've set up as, are you a quote-unquote real progressive or not? And the problem with it as a litmus test is that it's not a super popular policy. It's actually quite damaging, and it actually harms your electoral chances, both in primaries and generals, wouldn't it be far better if we made the wealth tax, which is very popular, if we made that the litmus test? That's an argument, and I see why a lot of force to that argument, honestly. Like, we just got it wrong strategically. But then there's another view, and this is why I think this problem is so difficult and intractable, and it's going to require really serious, sustained thought on our part as we go forward as a movement, is it's actually precisely because it imposes quite a high cost that it's an appropriate litmus test, right? It's precisely because someone has to give up something to enter the gang that we know we can trust them. And it's the same way. It functions well as a litmus test precisely because it really does separate out people who are both feet in it from people who are in it in a more transitory or transactional way. The challenge that then comes from that is, and I might be overusing this metaphor now, it's like a gang has to get one of their members employed at a bank because, I don't know, they're doing some heist or something, right? But they're now disadvantaged, because the very things that they've done to show loyalty to the gang now are disadvantaging them if they try to get their members put in positions that are more like part of mainstream society. And I think that's kind of the challenge now. If the Sanders movement wants to be about 20% of the political spectrum, and our sort of end goal is to have a sort of progressive contingent in Congress, like the left-wing Tea Party or something like that, then these 
mechanisms will actually work very well, right? The thing is, if we want to take over the political spectrum, the same things that we found necessary in order to sort of ensure group loyalty and a certain amount of intergroup trust are now, for the same reason that they were good mechanisms to do that, proving huge detriments to our ability to expand beyond that base. So that might have been a bit long, but I was trying to, like, come up with an analysis of why this movement has adopted these markers and litmus tests that didn't just reduce them down to a strategic mistake. And that's the narrative I came up with. And I think when you have that narrative, you might still retain the intuition that we have, if we do want to take over the political spectrum, we have to change these litmus tests. But also to sort of give some understanding as to why they're there in the first place, what function they're serving, and how difficult it will be for us to move away from them while retaining the trust and the support of people in that tribe. So that's that. So that's sort of my read of Warren. Um, I think, to sum up, the capitalism versus socialism thing is how a lot of people understand it, but I don't think it's primary in the same way as sort of working within the system versus um, believing in organising. I think that's there, but it's not the primary divide that it's coming from. I do think there is gender playing a strong role here, and I also think there's a role for how far one views economic justice as primary versus social justice as primary. But overall, my feeling is that it's different ideas about the political, about how we should regard and trust or not trust um, the leadership of both parties, whether they're sort of both corporate subsidiaries, as it were, or if the Democratic Party is something we want to work within rather than to simply do a hostile takeover of. That's my read with all of this. And what I think a lot of that brings me to, and the final point I want to touch on here, is I've used this, this narrative of a hostile takeover of the Democratic Party. That's a specific language that I've heard both from people opposed to Bernie, but also from Bernie Sanders supporters about what it is that they aim to do here. And I think, consciously or subconsciously, we've all been, you know, we can't, unfortunately, and to my great regret, we can't really talk anything about American politics, even on the left without mentioning Donald Trump's influence of all of this, right? In so far as this, I think the hostile takeover is consciously or subconsciously very much a read of and a reaction to Trump. I think there's a lot of people on the left who have seen what Trump has done and sort of said, yeah, we want to do that. Now, this is not at all to say that Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders are the same person. Um, they're absolutely not. Um, but that people are sort of, that's the tactics we want to do. We want to come in with an energised base, running against the establishment, and just sort of crush the party and put them all beneath our feet, right? And I do think, like... Not for all, but for some Sanders supporters, that has been the, the model. 
And I've always been sort of sceptical of that for two reasons. For one, I think it's a misread of how Trump took over the Republican Party. Yes, he did run very much against the establishment, and I'll come back to that. But he's also been a surprisingly good transactional politician. He said to the religious right, you know, I am not going to put a Fox News host on the Supreme Court. Here is the list of judges I will go with, and he's been very competent at making sure they get their judges, right? To the sort of donor class, you have your tax cuts, right? Um, you have your deregulation. So the big core constituencies within the Republican Party, they've all got what they want transactionally. And as a result of that, they've generally been pretty willing to tolerate his grotesque behavior and his corruption and so on. But that wasn't so much them you know, being beaten into submission and really folding down before Trump, it's them prioritising things they care about, judges and tax cuts, over things that they don't care about, like ridiculous public behaviour and corruption. Now, that's quite an immoral way to look at the world, but I, I think that is the way that they look at the world like that. What Bernie Sanders is trying to do is something different. He's not trying to be head of a Democratic Party that substantively, and in terms of policy, does what it's always been doing and, you know, has a transactional relationship with all of his key, all, all of its sort of key support groups. No, he's trying to fundamentally change that agenda. So I think the Sanders equivalent doesn't make sense because there's... I mean, unless the goal is Sanders behaves ridiculously on Twitter, but substantively we do sort of what any democratic administration would have done, I don't think that's what his supporters do want. So I don't think that deal is open. The other thing that I think we've learned is that the primary electorates of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, at least on a national level, don't view the leadership of that party in the same way, or like the preferences of the, the, the median voter are different. So I think basically Republican primary voters in 2016 hated the establishment of their party much more than Democratic primary voters in either 2016 or 2020. Now, there's a number of reasons for that. And again, what, what Bernie Sanders supporters will say here is that everyone hates the establishment. That's true, but disliking the establishment in general is not the same thing as commitment to a more specific ideological narrative, right? Um, and I think more Republicans were really willing to say, we want to sort of put, quote-unquote, one of our guys. I think that's how sort of people saw Trump. We want to put one of our guys in and give them a kicking. I think Democratic voters, there's definitely a chunk of them who really want that, but it's a minority chunk. And I was thinking about this, and I, this take isn't unique to me, but I think here's the difference that makes a difference, is for the Republican primary voters of 2016, the last national leader of their party, the last president of their party, had been profoundly discredited and rejected, not just by 
Democrats and independents, but by Republicans too. George W. Bush, when he left office, had an approval rating of, like, Nixon levels. I think it was, like, somewhere in the high 20s. It was bad. And he left after two outcomes, the Iraq War and the recession, that had been unpopular not just overall, but had been unpopular with Republicans. And so, in many ways, I think Trump correctly recognised that in running against the establishment of his party, he was sort of running against Bush. And he recognised that there was room for that because Republican primary voters had also come to reject Bush. And just as an aside, it is interesting to see that the Republicans who have most broken with Trump and most been willing to go into the never-Trump camp are all of these sort of Bush-era foreign policy people. That does seem to be the, the sort of thread that unites the um, anti-Trump opposition. Now, I wonder if Sanders gave enough thought to the fact that running against the establishment would necessarily mean running against Obama. Because Obama is not regarded by the majority of Democratic primary voters in the way that Bush was regarded by the majority of Republican primary voters. Obama is still broadly very well liked within the party. His presidency is largely seen as a success with most primary voters. And I think if on a strategic level Joe Biden wanted to make this a referendum on Obama, us accepting the terms of that engagement was always a fight we were going to lose. Now, to the Sanders people, Obama was sort of a betrayer. He ran on progressive values and, and sold us out. I actually don't agree with that narrative. I think Obama was actually always much more centrist than his, a lot of progressive supporters imagined him to be. But regardless of if it's right or wrong, if your narrative is we're here to cancel, to undo, to, 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 to sort of repudiate the Obama years, which is, I think, what a lot of Sanders supporters feel, then you're not going to be able to replicate that in the way that Trump did. Because the parties just feel, and you can see this in opinion polling, you know, they just feel very differently about their last president. And that, of course, brings me on to another huge issue which will be central to the discussion that the left is going to have going forward, and I'm not going to do here because this deserves another big episode in its own right, um, which is the demographic breakdowns and the support we got in this primary as well as in 2016 along the lines of race. So obviously in talking about how people feel about the Obama presidency, for or against, some thought has to go into the fact that this was the first black president, right? And some analysis has to go into, you know, Sanders recognised that non-white voters were a problem for him. Problem's perhaps the wrong word, but you know what I mean. That that was a challenge for his campaign in 2016. They put a lot of work into it, but it didn't work. Or it, it, it worked quite well with Hispanics, in fact. But Biden has really um, captured the black vote in this primary. And that's a topic 
which I am going to return to and I think has to be part of this ongoing conversation that we have, but I'm not going to do it justice, just trying to rattle off a few thoughts in the final few minutes. But that leads me on to this thought, and I'm going to close with this, is I think it's clear from the way I've been talking about it the whole time that I don't see this election as a one-shot thing. A lot of Sanders supporters have said, this is our last chance. And I understand with existential crises like climate change, the feeling of urgency, and I think that's appropriate. Um, but as someone who's super into ideological history, it's just not how I see it. You know, to really carve out a space within the political system for an ideology that has not existed within it before, or only existed in a much minor way, or, you know, they'll say we're going back to FDI. It's not existed in recent American history in any sort of dominant way. You know, is a long-term project, to put it mildly, the sort of um, market-based New Way liberalism that, that took over the Democratic Party in the 90s, you know, that was election after election worth of work on the part of ideologues representing that worldview. It was a long process. The sort of takeover of the Republican Party that we might call the Southern strategy was an intergenerational effort um, the, the focus and the priority that the Republican Party has given to taking over a court system has been an intergenerational effort of sustained hard work and really caring about, like, who gets this committee assignment, who gets this, having a pipeline of judges. These are huge projects, and I think it's Sanders' critics are sometimes too hard on him. But I think sometimes his own supporters are too hard on themselves. They've, you've done, I started it with this, extraordinary work in taking the representation that a progressive can get at the national level from 5% to 35% in a couple of election cycles with an ideological framing that is very different to what the core constituencies of the Democratic Party are used to. Very different. That is an incredible accomplishment. Finding ourselves there, if we want to ask, where do we go from here to win? I think there's a number of really complex and really just like analytically interesting questions that we're going to have to start asking. I think, you know, this question that I touched on a lot of... Um, what are the sort of signifiers that we set up? You know, I think we should already be looking forward, not to who we want to run next time. I don't have a particular individual in mind, but I think a really open and honest conversation between all the different parts of the left, between Warren supporters and Sanders supporters, and I know there's some bad blood there, between people who maybe ended up voting for Joe Biden out of pragmatism, but are, are sympathetic to the policy platform, to have a really open conversation, not about who it is, but on what are the sorts of things that we should be taking as litmus tests. What would someone have to do to qualify for that role? What, what would someone have to have done or to be saying that would make us feel like we can trust them? I think that's a big conversation we need to have. We also, and again, I'm saving this for another episode, need to have a conversation about 
what's going wrong with our messaging or our platform that it's impacting very disproportionately across demographic groups. I've given you a lot of reasons why I think it's concentrated among young voters, but young voters are not enough, right? What can we be what else can we be doing here? And just as much so uh, for non-white voters, right? So but to say all that is simply to say is I don't view this as game over for the progressive left. I in fact view it more like we've got from one step on the ladder to five steps up the ladder. And that's terrific. And there's a lot of great work and interesting conversations to be done ahead of us. And that's going to be hard and difficult and challenging. And listen, I'm certainly not pretending to have all the answers if I've contributed anything here. It's to maybe just try and think a bit more clearly about how we formulate the problems. But I don't see this as over. You know, the, the, the Biden's all but said he'll only do one term. And hopefully he has a nice progressive um, vice president who we can all get behind. He's floated Stacey Abrams. I think that that's someone who has credibility on the left. You know, or if not, there's primaries. And it's not just presidential primaries. It's primaries at every level. We've built a terrific foundation here. And it's a great launching pad to go forward off of. And that's how I think we should see it. Not just that we've lost, and that's it. You know, there will be other elections. And I don't mean to sound dismissive there. These losses hurt. For real. And I know people put their heart and soul into this, and I know it feels awful, and I've been on enough election campaigns, and I've lost enough of them, right? I know this hurts. And I know it's... It's not just a game, it's not just an argument, it's not just a debate. People really felt invested in it. I think, you know, for now the most obvious thing is we need to make sure Trump doesn't get re-elected. Not because, you know, you might feel that Joe Biden's insufficiently progressive. I am reassured that he's adopted Warren's bankruptcy plan and um, Sanders' student loan plan in recent days. I understand some people would want him to go a lot further, but that is something. It's shown that he's listened. And if nothing else, if Trump gets another term, we will have a 7-2 Supreme Court and a complete normalisation of racism as a way of mobilising voters. And that puts us in a really dark and difficult place. And I think once we're there, that might potentially close the door to a more progressive agenda for another generation. And so I think, if nothing else, we have to just keep that door open. <laughs> Not necessarily because we think we'll get everything we want out of Biden, although, as we've seen, we might get something. And I don't think, like, you know, free, free community college for people earning under $125,000, I think it is. I haven't looked at the policy closely. I don't think that's nothing to, that's nothing to sneeze at. A public option in healthcare would be terrific. It would help a lot of people's lives. So even if we're not getting everything we want now, we might get something. And at any rate, we should leave the door open. So I think that's the next big task that we all have to turn our focus to. But after that, I think the question is, we have a foundation. We've learned how to mobilise effectively 30% of the Democratic Party, as well as showing that there's others who come on board with the policies, but not the ideology. So how do we think about that? How do we grow? How do we go forward from here? And I think that has to be a conversation for all of us, for all the different parts of the left. And that's a conversation I'm really interested in having. And I welcome your 
engagement in having that conversation with me. I want to have that conversation with you if you're listening and have thoughts, you know, send them in. And it's a conversation I'm going to be continuing to have on the podcast as I go forward. I have people from all different parts of the left on. And I think that the, the topic of how do we build from here rather than why did we lose is going to be the question to be asking over the coming months and years. Thank you.